Hey, Fix and Fan Raising fans, it's Tom here. And Dean and I were joined by Martha Aljobi for this episode of Fixing Fundraising. Martha's a fundraising consultant, but she's also an organizer at the charity So White Movement. Um, really worth checking out her Twitter profile, but also the charity So White website, which is linked in the episode below. I think it's fair to say that Andy and I had very little to add to this conversation and were really, um, we were both rendered almost speechless at some points um, by both Martha's story, but also her candidness and how she shares it. And I think now more than ever, this conversation is so relevant for all organizations, but not just organizations that work in the charity sector. Um, but I think as a group of fundraisers and as a group of allies, there's so much we can do to advance the diversity in fundraising and really make sure that the charity sector is representative of the society that we want to help. And I think Martha shares some really amazing tips, really amazing concrete actions that you listening uh, are, can take and can really make a difference on. And I think we're really lucky to have this opportunity to listen and learn from Martha. And I think you'll find this really insightful and useful as well. As always, let us know if you have any questions. You can always reach out to us at Fixing Fund Pod on Twitter. You can email us too, and you can find Martha at Martha Awajobi on Twitter as well. Happy listening. Hello, and welcome to Fixing Fundraising. As ever, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Tom Dufresne. Hello. And we're delighted to be joined by Martha Awajobi, Director of the World. <laughs> Hi. It's fine. We've given you that title, so you can just stick that on LinkedIn now. Pretty sure okay. that's how that works. Director of the World is my new, my new LinkedIn update. Nice. It's about uh, time, I think, that the world had one. We, we need someone <laughs> to do it right now. If you're up to the challenge, Martha, we need someone to direct like the world. Quite a challenge to be put to <laughs> <me> on podcast. <laughs> I feel like at, at this point, with great power comes like what, enormous freedom. Isn't that the Dominic Cummings approach? Saw that on Twitter. So. I seems, just feel like, like I wouldn't be able to get away with the same things that Dominic Cummings has been able to get away with. Yeah, we can probably guess why. <laughs> Which leads us quite nicely into our topic for the day. Um, Martha, what did you want to talk about today? Um, today, I want to talk about why there are no black people in fundraising. I, I'm a black fundraiser, I'm a queer black fundraiser, um, and there really aren't that that many of us. Um, the first time I actually ever met another black fundraiser was at an EDI event run by the Institute of Fundraising. And it's actually kind of sad that, firstly, that happened last year, um, and I've been in fundraising for eight years now. So that's a wow. long time. Yes, right. <laughs> um, um, the only other black fundraisers I'd met had been working in street fundraising, which is, you know, a completely, um, there's a complete divide, I guess, between the fundraisers that you see in a, a street fundraising team compared to the fundraisers that you would see in a head office team. So I met Cam uh, last year at an EDI event. Um, and it was just kind of sad that the only reason that we met was because we were both black. Um, it wasn't anything to do with our work or our skill um, it was the fact that we were at an EDI event that we met. Um, and that's, yeah, it's, it's annoying. Uh, <laughs> there are very few people who look like me. Um, and a lot of that, I think, is down to the way that we as a sector approach recruitment um, and approach reten retention of staff that we've recruited. And it's very personal for me because... Um, I had one year in recruitment. Um, I actually uh, worked in charity recruitment and I recruited fundraisers. So I've kind of seen firsthand what happens inside um, the charities themselves. Um, and I've also seen 
what happens in the agencies that these charities use in order to recruit fundraisers. And I have to say, it's pretty bleak (laughs) on both sides. Um, And a lot of that has kind of, well, let's, let's start with recruitment, shall we? So the barriers that black and brown people uh, face begin right at the beginning at entry level uh, positions and then continue up to senior leadership, right? Um, I don't know how easy it was for you two to get into the third sector. Was it all right? Did it take a little bit of lying around? I'm very aware my position of privilege definitely helped me get into the sector fairly quickly. Tom? For sure, right? It's a hard one to break into. And like a lot of the time you would need, especially with fundraising, a lot of the time um, you need these volunteer Mm. positions and internships, right? In order to have that kind of first step onto the ladder. So already if you've got, you know, parents who are able to support you financially um, and you don't have to worry about about cash um, in the same way that people with less privilege would, then, you know, you're able to, to take on those volunteer roles um and those kinds of roles are so often you see them advertised on like Russell Group um university online portals and in not many places that are specifically designed to attract like black and brown people so already we're on an unequal footing right um and yeah it the 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 low wages of an entry-level job in fundraising are definitely going to put people of color off um that is definitely um a barrier um and then you know how many times have you seen on a job spec um the sentence we're looking for someone who can hit the ground running you know um that's like I don't know I see it like every single time I'm applying for a fundraising role it's like we want someone who can hit the ground running and who's a right fit for the team and that basically says we want someone who's done the job before so if you haven't had that internship um then, you know, you're not able to have that experience um, to be someone who can hit the ground running. Um, And also the right fit, you know, Um, what's the right fit for a team that is 90% white women? It is another white woman. Um, And like language like that, um, even though it might seem quite, um, quite basic and innocent, um, it actually kind of has a little, a little coded nature to it. um, That are quite a deterrent for people who might um, need a little bit more development to get into the role because they haven't necessarily had that kind of experience um, working in those unpaid internships. Um, in, and a lot of it is the kind of the, the attitude that um, hiring managers have in terms of having to fill roles really quickly um, or face losing income to competitors, um, which is you know a real problem for target-driven sectors. Um, that if you take a long time recruiting somebody, then you're going to lose a considerable amount of income, right? Um, but in that, because people are people are trying to recruit so quickly, they'll play it safe and they'll um, find someone who can hit the ground running. Um, it's actually worth um, putting, like hiring a temporary member of staff, right, to give you a little bit more time to find that right person permanently. Um, and as I said, I've worked in recruitment. Um, and you know, some of the things that I saw there, um, at the time I wouldn't, so I was about 21 years old. Um, and at the time I didn't kind of register just how, how much racism was operating in these, in these, um, yeah, with these consultants, you know, there were people who were saying that they shouldn't like prioritize CVs of, uh, with names that are hard to, hard to pronounce, um, just kind of making fun of people's names, making fun of people of colour. Um, it was actually quite, it was it was difficult to see um, as one of the few people of colour in that agency as well. And I think um, there needs to be a real kind of investigation of what kind of agencies people are using, um, whether, you know, when you're going out with, jo- um, with job opportunities to recruiters, are you asking them, you know, how they um, prioritise equality, diversity and inclusion, whether they, you know, practice anti-racist work, um, because you're kind of putting, you know, all, a, a lot of that responsibility in the hands of somebody that you don't know and you don't know their values. Um, so having those kinds of really open and quite difficult conversations with your agencies um, is something that is really, really important and 
vital in order to find those those right black and brown candidates. Um, let's talk about interviews, I guess. <laughs> um, so I have been um, I've been through for lots of interviews for fundraising roles. Um, I'd say seven or eight at least um, that I can remember. And I have never once in my life been interviewed by a woman of colour. And that's, I think it would be unbelievable if I was a white man and I said I've never been interviewed by a white man in my life. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. not, yeah, because I, I was I was preparing for this podcast and I was trying to think back at everyone that had interviewed me and thinking, have I ever been interviewed by a person of colour? And I was once, when I was 23, um, interviewed by a man of colour at the NSPCC. But again, that's it. And so I've met one person of colour on a recruitment panel before in my life. And is it any wonder that people of colour um, don't really want to join the fundraising industry when, you know, at interview stage, there is literally nobody who looks like them, nobody who understands their experience. It can be pretty daunting going into an interview and not being sure whether somebody in the interview panel is a racist. Um, so, um, and that interview at the NSPCC um, was actually a really amazing one. And it's one that like really does stick with me because we spoke about what it means to be a woman of colour. Um, and he's got, you know, he had two daughters, I think. We were talking about the makeup industry um, and how, um, you know, uh, dark skin, um, dark skin women um, really struggle with um, beauty standards that are based around, you know, light skin um, and things like that. And we had this really frank and open conversation that made it one of the better interviews. I didn't get the job, but, <laughs> but it was still a really good interview um, because I was able to connect with someone on that level. And I've never had that experience since. Um, and I hadn't had that experience before. Um, so even thinking about really mixing up the interview panels, and if you can't find people of color to be on your interview panels, then you don't have enough people of color who are in decision-making positions. Um, it is that simple. Um, so something I find quite frustrating about, um, the way we treat kind of, yeah, the whole recruitment process is that I think the hiring managers and the fundraising fundraising leadership have have said you know there is there is a a diversity issue um there aren't enough people of color in our teams and some of them seem to think that just making that statement is enough um and suddenly now that they've said oh you know we want more people of color to apply suddenly people of color are going to start flocking into fundraising positions and we've seen that that just doesn't happen Um, And if people think that it's just enough to note that there's not enough people of colour rather than doing some really quite like dramatic and radical actions to change that, um, it can be quite disappointing. And I actually think it's pretty lazy. Um, So I have applied for loads of fundraising jobs and I have done exactly the same interview for every single one. (laughs) And, you know, it's a panel of white people who asked me to do a presentation um, and then have a and a interview. And if that's the only type of interview practice that we're doing, how do, do we expect to get different results from doing the same thing over and over again? How um, can we really test people's skills if what we're asking them to do is do an interview based on experience? Um, and we've already said that there's barriers to people getting into entry-level positions, um, people of colour getting into entry-level positions. So how are they ever going to get to middle management and be able to do those kinds of interviews that are all based on having already done that job before, um, if there's no real kind of value of transferable skills. Um, and it's all kind of like, all the things I'm saying are very similar, you know, it's, it's kind of reinforcing in very, very small and subtle ways. Um, this kind of exclusionary uh, club of, <laughs> of white middle-class women fundraisers. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't that many men fundraisers. Uh, there are less, but they are the ones that are in more senior positions um so it it can feel very very um difficult um interviewing for jobs as a woman of color um i have been offered salaries that are lower than the ones on the job spec at offer stage um i have now kind of gone into consultancy because i don't think there's it's going to be easy for me to progress into senior management positions if i do it in the kind of 
orthodox way that the charity sector um, within kind of like charity sector parameters. Um, and then once we're in organizations, um, how weird is it like being the only person of, you know, the only person of color on a team? Um, it's, yeah, the, the, it's so often that I will be in maybe one meeting a week that has another person of color in it and the other 12 <laughs> are all white people. Um, and if the, your organization doesn't respond well to diversity, people of color are just going to leave. Um, and that's a talented leader that's gone, right? Um, people of color are amazing street fundraisers and that talent is recognized. So why are they not talented enough to be bringing that money in in these, you know, in these front facing um, office roles, um, dealing with high net worth individuals and, um, you know, not, not just speaking to people on the, on the streets. Um, so what would I recommend? <laughs> I don't have all of the answers, I have to say. Um, but I think setting public targets for improving diversity is really important. Blind recruitment processes, trying different things, you know, like doing assessment centers or um, just, a, just a completely different way of doing the interview um, process. Because if you try a different approach, you may get a different result. Um, ensuring that job descriptions uh, are really clear that they make diversity a priority. I think the job I was, I've been most excited to apply for in my life, um, in my life, it's very dramatic, but it might have been in my life, um, is a job at the Roundhouse. Um, so, yeah, so, so I applied to the Roundhouse because they, I mean, among other things, the Roundhouse is amazing, but they actually spoke about diversity as the first thing, um, and that I'd never seen before. And I was like, oh, my God, somebody is interested in hearing about the fact that I'm a person of colour. Um, and that's really cool. And actually, we spoke about um, race and like my work with Charity So White and all of that stuff um, in the interview. And it was it was great. Um, another recommendation I have is something that I've been really I've been thinking about quite a lot today um, about, you know, the fact that people of colour, women of colour, uh, face very different issues in their daily lives to the issues that, um, you know, not all white people, but some white people face, um, you know, our, our issues are completely different. Um, and people in your organization, your your managers and leaders need to really be conscious of, of the fact that, so for example, right, in the last two days on Twitter, I've seen a, black, a video of a black man get killed by the police. I've seen a video of a white woman calling the police and lying to them, saying that an African-American man is threatening her life when he wasn't. He was asking her to leash her dog um, on a nature reserve. Um, and these have been posted on Twitter over and over and over again. And I've had to carry that that violence and that trauma kind of all the last two days. Um, it's kind of inescapable. Um, and people don't really ask, and managers don't really ask, you know, how can they support us as we're shouldering this violence um, at the same time as trying to do our day jobs in a pandemic. Um, and I think a little bit more kind of thought around the fact that actually maybe some members of your staff are carrying an extra burden, right? That maybe you don't understand, but you should try and get to try and talk to them about, you know, how, how you can make their working life easier. Um, and I think that's something that's really, really important. And I think because People are a little bit frightened about talking about race or bringing it up. You know, it can be a little bit too awkward. But actually, the leaders and the managers that I've really appreciated have been the ones who have been really open to me, kind of setting, to explaining to them like how how what it what it like what it means to be a person of color working in fundraising, what it means to be a woman a queer woman of color working in fundraising, and that's made all the difference for me in my work. Um, when I felt like somebody's really taken the time to, um, yeah, to to understand my experience, um, yeah, it's it doesn't happen very often. I'm not gonna lie. Um, and then you know there needs to be space at work to be able to talk about racism. Um, if there are you know if there are no black people in senior management, I should be able to challenge that um, and do that you know, within my organization, outside of my organization, without fear of what what the consequences might be for me and my job security. 
Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot, um, there's a lot that needs to change. Um, and it's easy to put the onus on, you know, the, the people, people of color for not wanting to join fundraising, um, when fundraising hasn't really made it very attractive for us. Um, and you know, with everything I've kind of, I've outlined, how would you ever expect there to be women of color in leadership? Um, unless they're working in a small organization that works specifically with communities of color. Um, so there's just kind of barrier, um, you know, barrier after barrier after barrier. Um, but, you know, the, these kinds of changes are not going to happen if leadership don't take things really seriously um, and don't actually invest financial resource in this. You know, EDI is really, really important. Um, it's important to your organization's success. Um, it's important to 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 society as a whole, you know, to to not have a monolithic, um, an ethnic monolith in um, in an organization. Um, and you know, if all of your computers were broken and you had no IT infrastructure, you would pay to get that fixed. But fundraising is clearly broken um, because it's completely dominated by white people so it's going to take money to get that fixed I definitely know that you know with with COVID-19 um and the fact that you know people are going to have to like make some serious decisions about how they work whether they can afford to stay in the sector um and people making decisions about you know who they keep on in their organizations it is disproportionately people of color who are in precarious job job situations whether they're in the sector or not you know and even kind of, you know, beyond fundraising, the cleaners um, and, you know, people who are kind of doing that kind of work um, within our organisations, they're also the ones who are really hit badly by this crisis. Um, what I'm really terrified of um, is that when we emerge from COVID-19, we're going to emerge with an even whiter fundraising sector than we did before, because people of colour have had to make other decisions about their careers um, to make sure that they're able to live, um, to still to still eat and be able to pay rent um, and provide for their families, um, so that's that that is a big fear of mine. Um, is that yeah we're going to be losing people from the sector left, right, and centre? I mean, nine out of ten um, fame-led charities will not exist in three months if there isn't serious financial investment right um, given to their organisations. Um, and, you know, there have been some calls for ring fencing and some funders who have um, said that they're going to ring fence a proportion of money for BAME led organisations. But so many of them are going to cease to exist um, very soon. Um, and, you know, they'll have talented fundraisers who are also doing 15 other jobs <laughs> um, in their organisations, too. Um, it's 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 quite scary to think that we are. We yeah we may be looking at an even whiter sector than we were before, um, if people deprioritize racial justice, um, you know, due to the the you know conflicting pressures that they're faced, leaders are faced with at the moment. Um, it's easy to deprioritize anti-racist work when you need to fund your services, right? Yeah, for sure. But the the processes and, and the the examples that you've just run us through of, of ways in which fundraising has made itself unattractive. For example, just the interview panel thing, I spent ages racking my brain to think if I've ever been interviewed by a person of colour. And I don't think I have. And I've also been really fortunate to sit on interview panels. And I was wondering if I've ever been on an interview panel with a person of colour. And I don't think I have. And that seems like That's such bad, an obvious misstep. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. That, and do you know what is that, so funny? I didn't even put two and two together until this morning when I started thinking about it. I was like, oh, my God, of course. <laughs> How did I not notice that? Um, and just the fact that we didn't really notice it just shows like you automatically kind of default to white people. It is the norm. Those are the people who have have who are, decide who who does and who doesn't um enter an organization um it feels like you know white white leaders have been making decisions about my career since the moment I was able to get paid for work um 
and that is that is that is quite something to think about really and the the other thing that you said that that really struck me was um I I spent a summer doing face-to-face fundraising and I, I hadn't really put two and two together either that actually that's that's the only team I've worked in with more than one black fundraiser in it ever. Yeah. And again, I worked I in face-to-face fundraising that. too. <laughs> and that's where all of my, I, I kind of thought that that fundraising would be diverse, like, you know, office fundraising, because I'd been tricked by these, mm. <laughs> these um, you know, multi-ethnic teams. Um, and it was such an eye-opening experience when I, went into the office for my first fundraising job I was like okay but where are, where is all the the people of color <laughs> so yeah that's just yeah both of, both of those considerations have, have really hit me because I think I hadn't thought about the fact that face-to-face fundraising is quite diverse and yeah that's so weird well not weird I think we can explain it as you have just done really eloquently but yeah, and I think there's something about kind of the the professionalization of fundraising um, and that that kind of like the ideology of what is and what isn't professional. Um, you know, office fundraising is professional, therefore white people do it. Street fundraising is not professional, it's hustling, therefore people of colour do it. Um, and actually the skill that street fundraisers have is unbelievable. Um, I've worked with some incredible um, fundraisers who would have translated really easily into office positions, but have never, ever been given that opportunity um, because you're kind of brandished with a street fundraiser. (laughs) If you've been doing it for a while, you end up kind of being really boxed into that, especially as a person of colour. But there is a lot about, you know, what we as a sector think is professional um, and what isn't. Um, and it is very clear that what our sector views as professional is white. Yeah, so this, this, the skills of, of, of the face-to-face fundraisers that I work with could translate into major donor relationships so seamlessly. Yeah. But so there's seamlessly. no work done at all. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, there is a huge market of people of colour who are major donors who want to give um, something. I mean, I work the majority in corporate. um, And so I I think I I get to interact with, you know, people, lots of people of colour who are in in the businesses that I, that I'm partnered with. um, And actually I can get on with people who are black in a different way to the way like my white counterparts um, get on with them. Um, there is a lot to be. There, there's a there's a lot of um, amazing things about being able to connect with someone based on your race. Um, and charities are missing out on a lot of income because they don't know how to connect with black and brown um, people. Uh, they don't know how to connect with black and brown donors, um, and they've never even kind of really cared to try. Because um, <laughs> if you really cared mm. to try, then you would hire some black and brown people um I I think um it makes it makes a lot of sense to me um so you know you've got a very kind of undiverse donor pool as well if you have a very undiverse team um so you're really just shooting yourself in the foot that's what that's what stuck out from for me when you were saying this Martha was like I can't imagine the economies of this make any sense to people when they hear it when it's laid out like this I can't imagine if you were able to quantify like you're missing out on a community of people who want to give to your cause because something you've always done is so stupid that you haven't taken the effort to undo it Uh, and and yet that there's like there's immense financial reward also attached to this forget like forget like you know diversity of thought if you want to forget it it's obviously it's a, it's an amazing thing that will allow you to innovate but there's also a financial reward attached to doing even the smallest things like making your cvs anonymous or whatever like there's tiny little steps that you can take and actually it just seems as you say laziness seems like the only answer like i don't know yeah. why else 
what other justification there possibly be other than we've always done it this way which I seems think we've like always done it this way is part of it I think some of, a lot of it is based on ideologies of <clears throat> who 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 helps mm-hmm. who you know who's who who needs rescuing um I think that there is a very kind of um ideological issue with the charity sector saying we are good people therefore we don't do wrong um and you know we there there's that kind of white people helping you know vulnerable communities um it is a very um i i guess that that ideology is really really ingrained um in a way that i don't think the sector is really willing to entertain a a conversation around um that kind of power and privilege um that really exists Mm -hmm. um with powerful organizations within the charity commission um that just plays out over and over again um and we go around in circles saying oh my god why aren't there any black fundraisers we really need to do more edi um (laughs) this place needs to be more diverse but unless you're willing to really have a look at the racism in your organizations you're going absolutely nowhere you're doing a, bit, a box ticking exercise where people of color enter into an organization that is incredibly racist and they just leave. <laughs> and you're back in the same position that you were in before. I think it's such a, a good point to, to mention that fundraisers or people that work in charity will, will consider themselves to be good people. And I think when you point a finger at, at, for example, racist hiring practices, um, there can definitely be a tendency to like almost take it personally. Yeah. And like outright reject it, being like, no, I'm a good person. I would assume that almost without listening to that experience or even anything above the, the point. And there's definitely like some learning there that we, we need to understand that, our organizations can have a good goal in mind, but that doesn't make them perfect. And if we address those problematic areas, it's going to make that mission easier to achieve. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, I think it is, there is that feeling of taking things personally, but that is because people don't understand what racism is. Um, People think it's an, you know, an interpersonal interaction between two people where one person says a slur or attacks the other person based on their race, right? And by that logic, reverse racism exists. And that's not what racism is. That's a completely incomplete um, understanding of it, which is the reason why if you say this here is racist, people think you're accusing them of saying a racial slur or physically assaulting somebody when really you're saying, you know, the systems that make up this organisation benefit white people, um, and present barriers to people of colour. Um, it's not personal, it's institutional. Um, and once we start looking at, you know, I think when I first joined Charity So White, there was something that one of the organisers said, and she said, um, it's not a question of if racism exists in your organisation, it's a question of how. It already exists because of institutional racism, you know. We're not looking, when I say, you know, your organisation is racist, I'm not looking for a kind of, a, a list of all of the interpersonal acts of racism that have happened between colleagues. I'm looking at, you know, your recruitment practices, um, the, you know, the way the way that people of colour are able to um, complain about racism that they've experienced, whether they're going to face further discrimination for speaking out, um, you know, that 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 kind of thing. Um, so it's so easy to, you know, get defensive and say well, you know, I'm not racist, so therefore racism isn't happening, or I didn't see it, so therefore racism isn't happening, because people really think that you're talking about an interpersonal action, and it's it's so much more than that, isn't it, you know? Um, it's, it's systems, it's institutions, um, it's a lot harder to dismantle, and it's a lot harder to really kind of take it in when you have to look at dismantling the entire structures of your life <laughs> and everything that you've believed or been taught um, about people of colour um, is wrong and it's dangerous and it's violent. And having to kind of have that acceptance that you really are, you know, benefiting from this kind of terrible structures and terrible, um, t- 
terrible systems. Um, that's really hard for, for people to come to terms with. Terms with it's very hard for white people to come to terms with, um, which is yeah part of the defensiveness. Um, why people are like, well, we're good people <laughs> because you don't being just because you're racist doesn't make you like a bad person. Like everybody is racist to some extent. Everybody um, has lived in a racialized society. Um, and has internalized racism in some way. And it's about unpicking that um, and trying to change yourself and change your organizations for the benefit of people of color and for the benefit of your organizations. Um, but that's really tough. Um, it's really hard work. It's difficult. It's uncomfortable. Um, and people don't want to be uncomfortable, really. Um, it's not a nice feeling, but people of color are uncomfortable all the time. <laughs> so... Um, it's a privilege to be able to avoid discomfort by shutting something down as I'm a good person. I'm not racist because I'm a good person and I work for a charity. It's question time. Martha, we're in <laughs> question time. Um, first question. <laughs> oh, is that is that the official question time song? Yeah, it honestly changes every episode. We haven't stuck on one yet, or may never stick on one. Uh, uh, we change it to avoid copyright issues. You understand? I totally understand. <laughs> yeah, we're we're in the crosshairs of copyright warriors all over the world <laughs> for our jingles. Oh um, <laughs> uh, question one is, and I think probably a really useful one because you mentioned some really practical tips. Um, while you were talking, and I think people that are really keen to like get started and and do something um, may want to know if there's like a a specific resource that you might recommend, whether it's a blog or or a website um, or whatever they may be. It could be your own. Would you recommend that people could get any more insight or can actually learn about those those kind of real concrete actions that they can take? Sure. So um, I mentioned that I'm part of. Uh, the organizing committee of charity so white um and i really recommend that everybody goes on the website and i'm not just plugging it because i'm part of it um but in terms of understanding <laughs> i know <laughs> in terms of understanding um how racism operates um the different forms that it can take and actually like how to move beyond having discussions just around equality diversity and inclusion which can you know really quickly become like a box ticking exercise by having like really honest um and deep serious conversations about structural racism and how that operates and what we can do to dismantle it within our organizations um yeah because i think the work we're doing is amazing um and i think um if we're really going to kind of cut through the noise um of edi um and get right to the core of why there are no um people of color fundraising and spoilers, the answer is racism, uh, <laughs> then that's a really good um, resource. Um, and I would also recommend um, Beyond Suffrage. Um, it's a trustee training program supporting the next generation of um, women of colour trustees. And one of our organising committee members has just um, been appointed a trustee on um, by, by org, by Pride org. Um, I've got it wrong now. Um but yeah, um, you know, we were talking about there being loads of, you know, white men trustees called John. Um, and if a woman of colour is looking um, to get properly trained on how to, you know, get get through the trustee um, application programme um, and to understand why it's so important um, for there to be not just white men called John <laughs> uh, on boards of trustees. Um, I think that's a really, really good um, and important um, resource that is really helping to redefine um, the the way the sector looks. Those are my two. I know you asked for one. It literally says, is there one? And I've said two. <laughs> it's all good. It's, it's two for the price of one. It's great. It's extra, it's extra value. More than you bargained for. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Is there anyone that you see who's particularly smashing it out of the park in terms of uh, recruitment practices or ensuring that uh, that black and brown fundraisers feel welcome to join their ranks? Um, I think that, I mean, I mentioned the roundhouse and I, I actually really did um, 
think that they had gone out of their way to kind of make a point about diversity. And they do kind of with with the work that they do anyway with the young creatives. Um, I think they were great. Um, a recruitment um, agency um, that I rate um, is Campbell Tickle. Um, Campbell spelled the normal way. <laughs> and Tickle, uh, T-I-C-K-E-L-L. Um, I, yeah, I, I heard them, they gave a, a presentation about um, the way they approach EDI through recruitment. And, you know, it was completely different to my experience working in recruitment. Um, it's like the kind of the kind of organization I would have loved to work for um, when I did work in recruitment. Um, and I think, you know, if you're looking to get diverse candidates, um, yeah, Campbell Tickle. And also there is an agency called BAME Recruitment Limited as well. Um, who specialize in finding um, BAME members of staff. Um, so I don't know why people um, aren't going to specialist recruiters for BAME staff members. Um, if they think that they have a, a diversity problem, I'd say go with a recruitment agency that's guaranteed to get you a person of color <laughs> rather than might, um, might give it a go. Um, yeah, those are my examples. Awesome. Thank you. Were there any examples that you wanted to give or any points that you wanted to bring up that you don't feel like you covered in the last section, Martha? Um, so I think I alluded to hiring from outside the sector um, and mm. yeah, be, being a little bit more um, brave in the kinds of candidates that you take on. Um, people who work in the commercial sector can bring an awful, a, yeah, a large amount, I was say an awful amount, an awfully large amount of um, experience um, and diversity of thought, as we discussed before, um, rather than people who have been working within the sector for, you know, ages, um, especially when it comes to, you know, work, things like corporate fundraising. Um, having someone that's worked in a business um, is a huge asset compared to somebody who's always just worked in the sector um because you know they have an insight into how businesses work that you know your fundraisers might not have um so i think it's really important to be open to hiring from outside the sector which means that we need to stop asking for people who can hit the ground running i feel like that needs to go uh, <laughs> that sentence needs yeah that phrase needs to be gone from all application processes um i wish there was a way that i could um i could ensure that when i do like public targets for improving diversity one of the criteria will be does not say you can hit the ground running um, on applications because it's just, it's my real pet peeve of the whole sector. <laughs> nice. I really feel like we, we are diving into the next question, like heads first. Um, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to ask it because I think we've already, we've already got the answer. Um, we, on this podcast, we have our I wish no one had ever thought of that. So we have everyone knows the very positive uh, Iwitot, which is about sharing great ideas. And we've gone straight for the negative. I wish no one had ever thought of that. And the question is, what is the one thing you wish you could unthink from the world of fundraising? But I think we may have scratched the surface of that one already. Well, do you know what? That wasn't even the one I chose. And now I've talked myself into <laughs> it being that. Because I really can't. I've literally been thinking for a week. I'm like, oh my God, do I actually like every single thing about fundraising? Of course I don't, but I can't think of a single thing um, that isn't really petty. Um, and I do feel like hitting the ground running is a little bit petty. Um, but that is that I I'd say that's my that's my that's something I wish no one had ever thought of putting words in those words in that order um that needs to be gone but actually I was going to say um white celebrities doing them really serious videos um while black kids are trying to get dirty water out of a puddle um that <laughs> is what I think no one should have ever thought of that because you know I was talking about ideologies before um and that kind of white savior mm. narrative and it's like oh my god can you be any more obvious in <laughs> in in the white saviorism and you know they've been going on for so long those kinds of videos and I kind of thought we were done with it um but I literally saw one the other day um and I was just like oh come on like it's such a bad representation to a lot of like incredibly ignorant people of like what what you know what what nations in africa are like um 
what what you know what their resources are um what what power they have um globally and it's just like it's yeah it's just completely it just it's just so unnecessary i mean i've never seen anything like it <laughs> with you know white 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 kids you know you don't have that kind of same voyeuristic um um voyeuristic serious tone of a, a white person talking about how terrible it is for these poor black kids and it's just it's so patronizing um I've always I've never been a fan um and you know I've worked with a lot of I've worked with a lot of people in fundraising where you can tell that they've really internalized that kind of ideology of white saviorism um all of the volunteerism um that kind of like narrative of like you know we I know what's best for your for your for your country and I'm here to save you from the ills of being a black person. Um, it's just, yeah, mm. that, that needs to be chucked in the bin, um, those, those, those adverts. And it's so annoying because you don't see them coming. They just pop up on my TV. And, um, and I'm like, oh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> Another re- reminder that white people think they're better than me. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've got, I've got two. I wish no one had ever thought of that. Um, when this morning I didn't even have one. So, nice. it's, a good, it's a productive day. Yeah, it's <laughs> very productive. Amazing. So, Martha, Tom's favorite question if you were going to be followed around with a sign above your head, it can be double sided. Oh, would okay. <laughs> that changes things because I actually have two, so I can now fit it onto one sign. <laughs> nice. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I should answer. Um, um, do you know what? The other day, uh, someone in Charity is So White said something that really resonated with me, and it was really just quite simple. And I think it, if it's, it's, I probably say that a lot of the people of colour in the sector and in fundraising will want this sign above their heads too. Um, And it simply just says, I'm so sick of this shit, man. Uh, (laughs) Because there was was a leader, a leader recently who um, who wanted to make a point about um, um, elderly people um, during COVID and the, you know, them being asked to um, sign um, sign contracts that, that say do not re- resuscitate um, and she used um, she kind of used all of the um, all of the kind of public conversations about people of colour disproportionately dying of COVID as a way to make her point um, saying you know if it was a BAME person um, who this was well, this was happening to everyone would be up in arms um, and this woman in um, in our Slack channel she's like I'm so sick of this shit man and <laughs> I was like, do you know what? It's so simple, but that really just says it all about how I think a lot of people um, of colour in the sector are feeling just so sick of this shit, man. But uh, <laughs> one that's um, slightly um, less uh, despondent, I guess, <laughs> um, is I think my personal sign um, would say, you're probably going to underestimate me. Um and leave it at that maybe a dot 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 at the end ellipsis um just to make it (laughs) more fancy um but yeah I think you're probably going to underestimate me that is such a good sign the ellipsis made it as well yeah it is a dot dot isn't it because it's like (laughs) I sound kind of I don't know it sounds like something's coming and they're going to have this big moment where they realize how much they've (laughs) underestimated me Um, If they underestimate you, just flip the sign around. I'm so sick of this shit, man. So I'm so sick nice. of this shit, man. Yeah. I love it. Oh, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We nailed it. We might have to t- we might have to take the question out now because we've got the ultimate sign. That's all it was about, really. <laughs> nice. Thank you, Arthur. And last but certainly not least, Martha, what is your favourite joke? Oh God, I'm, I'm already mortified by this. Um, okay, <laughs> I'm, already, I'm personally, I've already started laughing. It's not funny. Um, okay, 
So um, this person, a person, let's give them a name. Um, do you want to pick a name? Eddie. Okay. What was the name, sorry? Uh, Edward. Edward, okay. Eddie. So Edward um, entered into a pun competition and the prize was £5,000. So Edward entered 10 different puns thinking that one of these puns was guaranteed to get him to that £5,000 cash prize. Unfortunately, no pun intended. Nice. Oh, it's not that nice. It's good. Nah, I'm a fan. It was quite pun. I quite like it. Let me get through. (laughs) It's, um, It's hard to tell a joke on the spot. I think I'm just funny as a person. That was good. That was the least funny thing I've <laughs> ever said, a, I think. <laughs> it was a pun. It was a it was a pun within a pun, which is what I liked. Okay, it set me up for a pun, and then I was like, "Ooh, there's a pun coming!" And then, <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. I love it. Um, well, I guess from both from Randy and I, thank you so much for coming on, uh, Martha, and for actually sharing something that made me, I don't know about Andy, but made me speechless for the first time in a long time and really made me think, which I think is the one thing that you can definitely take away is you will mm. make people think listening oh, to this. Oh, that's good to hear. Um, which, which, which helps thinking is what we, you know, we can think our way out of a, um, a BAME crisis in, in the sector. And I think it's it means thinking creatively and it means thinking like, completely outside the box. But I guess the one thing to add at the end right now is where would our listeners go to find more of you and more of Charity So White on the World Wide Web? Um, so they can find us at our amazing brand new website. I keep saying it's brand new. It's two months old, but that's still quite new, um, <laughs> which is charitysowhite.org. Um, I'm also going to launch my own website soon. Um, I'm sure I'll call it Martha Alwajabi. Uh, <laughs> um, nice. So, yeah. Um, or um, my Twitter is at Martha Alwajabi. Um, I'm sure I'll write it on something um, for you to share. Um, but, yeah, keep following Charity So White on Twitter um, because not only is our content absolute fire, um, but also, um, you know, we've, we've got a lot to say. Um, we're a group of people of colour who have really had enough of this shit, man. <laughs> so, um, yeah, find us on Twitter and find us on our website. Amazing. We'll put links in the episode description. So when people are on their podcast uh, network of of choice they can they can click those links and find you on social media and also find the charity so what website so um a big thank you once again for for coming on and sharing that um amazing episode with us thanks for having me it's been fun i'm i'm sorry that my joke was so poor i'm really ashamed of myself I want, I want to do over. I, I only know one joke. So. <laughs> <laughs> I 